Glad to have you all here. If you're visiting for the first time today, welcome to our church. Again, my name's Chris. I'm, I'm one of the pastors. And we are in a series right now in the book of Zechariah. And finishing up, we'll be in this for three more weeks, including uh, today. So we're uh, drawing to a close. It's 14 chapters long. We'll do one chapter per week here for a couple more weeks. Uh, just to recap on what this book is all about, this segment of Scripture too, if you're new to the Bible or the prophets, the last part of the Old Testament, uh, or just have forgotten, uh, the prophets are uh, historical individuals who basically spoke for God or God spoke through them to the people of Israel and kind of in context of what they were experiencing at that uh, part of not part of theological history. So at this part, Zechariah is one of the three return prophets, we call them. So as the Israelites are returning from Babylonian exile, and they've been there for 70 years, God is prophesying kind of graces and truths and things in light of that return about it, but also about a future time when God would truly return people to himself spiritually. So one eye in the present about Israel's return from Babylonian exile, but one eye in the future about a time when he would send his suffering servant, we just sang about, or in Zechariah's terms, a true priest king or a branch or the son of David or just himself uh, to come into the world and truly enact a return that the, the former returns could only at best whisper and point to. So these are real graces, uh, real-time graces. God is doing amazing things here, but they're good, not great. They're for particular people, not for the nations. And so when God talks about these things, he talks about them, but he also talks about them kind of um, being recapitulated or kind of re being revisited in a greater way in the future in association with his son Jesus. And so it's kind of been our working uh, definition or summary about what Zechariah is about. And other, you could put, put this on other prophets as well in so many words, but what is Zechariah? It's a series of apocalyptic visions and prophetic oracles about Jesus Christ and other New Testament realities from the vantage point of Israel's return from Babylonian exile in and around 520 B.C. So the promises of God, then, as I was saying, are kind of progressive. I, I, I had mentioned um, this illustration. I got this from someone else uh, years ago. But a few weeks ago, I mentioned this. It's, it's kind of like a, a dad promising a horse to his kid decades ago uh, when he turned 16, just as a gift or a transportation. But then, when he turned 16, he ends up giving him a car instead because the car was invented in the meantime. And the idea there is that the, the promise of the dad was kind of progressive. It's not like he reneged on his promise just because he didn't give him a horse. He gave him something greater. Uh, so not a perfect thing there, uh, correlation, but it's kind of like that. The prophets are speaking in horse terms, uh, but really about a future time when a car would be given. And so they're progressive in that sense. In this case, Zechariah is talking about, again, one day, Jesus bringing us back to God. If you have that in mind when you read Zechariah, you'll get a lot, actually quite a bit out of it. It's a confusing book. The prophets themselves are heavily laden with symbolism and prophetic language, and so it's hard to wade through. But if we think about Christ and have him in the forefront of our interpretational methodologies, we'll actually get quite a bit uh, from, from this book. So, so it's about Jesus bringing us back to God as God is bringing Israel back to the promised land. And so again, God loves speaking in his terms. Jesus does this. He speaks in physical terms about spiritual realities all the time. And Jesus is God. And he doesn't change. And so as you read Jesus' methodology, the way he teaches back into how God is working, uh, we see the same kind of thing. Uh, God is doing this too. He's speaking in physical terms about spiritual uh, realities. And so the return then of God's people in the Old Testament is a really good, real-time grace thing. Not to minimize that, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is always better. To borrow from the book of Hebrews and the New Testament, Jesus is better than all the Old Testament prefigurements of him. And those are great. 
But Jesus is better than the, the types, the foreshadowings, the pictures, uh, the big arrows that pointed ahead and anticipated his, uh, from that vantage point, later, uh, later coming. So today then, as uh, Peter said, kind of got at, we're going to look at this idea of piercing God, and as God is pierced, he destroys enemies. Uh, Zechariah 12, 1 to 14. I'm going to outline this kind of based on what's going on here, just flipped. We're going to look at the idea of God destroying his people's enemies as sort of the what to this passage, and then look at the how afterwards. So how is God truly going to do that? Again, with one eye in the future, how is he going to do that uh, secondarily? So we're going to look at the first nine verses first. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you've got them, or phone apps, Bible apps, or follow along on screen, uh, that's, that's great too. But we're going to look at the first nine verses here uh, to, to begin. So let's do that now. Zechariah 12. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all of the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord, going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All right, so let's look at these first few verses here. Again, this is a little bit more of the what to the prophecy, at least in part. We'll, uh, talk, there's a lot going on here. We'll talk about a few of the big things. In short, this is a prophecy about a day when God would destroy Israel and Judah's enemies. So destroy his people's enemies and protect Israel and Judah. Uh, in, in the process. But, and we've just seen that a lot in this, in this book already. If you're familiar all with this segment of, of the Bible, this is a big promise and an oracle and thing that the prophets speak over the people. It's a promise of protection. It's a promise of grace. It's a promise of God being active against threats against a, a people that he's chosen for himself and uh, that, that he's loved. But that's, that's the general. Look at the specific, though. Look at, and I encourage you to do this. Maybe you saw this, but Look at and breathe in some of this imagery as we've been doing it in this series so far. This is um, very catastrophic and awful and wonderful at the same time. All the nations will surround the people of God, it says. It's, this is kind of like prophetic hyperbole, uh, hyperbole in a sense here. All the nations will surround the people of God. But God, the one who formed the universe with a word, will fight for his people. And I love that he's labeled here. He's titled. Right? So not just God will show up, but the one who formed the universe with the word. Or in verse 1 he says, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. That's the God who will show up to fight for his people. 
You know, so that's, it's an imbalanced fight, right? It's unfair. You know, that God will show up uh, to protect. So greatly encouraging thing for the people of God. And as it says here, a cup of staggering for those who are against his people. It would have been a frightful thing uh, for those who are against God's people to hear uh, such a uh, thing, physical or spiritual enemies. So all nations surround the people of God. God shows up to fight. The nations stagger. Horses will be struck with panic. Riders with insane madness. They will hurt their backs trying to lift huge rocks, which represent the people of God. Which is an interesting prophetic image. Like, like people are walking into the city trying to pick people up, and they can't, like Thor's hammer or something. You know, like they can't. The people of God are immovable, is the image. The people of God are immovable, unshakable, which is actually a word used for God elsewhere in the Bible as well. The immovable nature of God applied now to his people. But they'll hurt their backs, and then fire will come forth from the city and consume the foes of, of God's people. And then God promises to make, and this is the, the interesting contrast here, God promises to make the feeblest among the people like David, who is a king or was a king. And all in all, I think it's just a great picture of God being both mighty warrior and the one who gently takes the hand of the lame and lifts them up at the same time. This is who God is. He fights our biggest battles, and he's extremely gentle at the same time. Wrathful against sin and extremely kind. He's the kindest being in the universe at the same time. He's both. And both are really, really good. So the background here, too, is really important. The context for this, uh, I I think, accentuates these things all the more. I've been saying this in the series, but I want to just put our finger on this one more time, uh, at least, if not the next two weeks, too, but especially today. Uh, remember the context for, uh, around which or kind of against which God is making all these promises. The Jewish people have just spent 70 years in exile due to their personal sin. So not just systemic sin, like sin is out there, but sin is personal as well. That's a, a good word for us to remember uh, too. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not just systemic. We have problems with what's going on in the world, right? And that's, that, that can be a good thing. Sin is out there. We can stop there sometimes. The problem's just out there, and it's not in here, uh, where we, we are kind of contradicting the biblical story. We have a hard time reading that theme into what God is saying here. So sin's out there, but it's also in here. And, they've been, and God's people were exiled because of uh, their, their inability and their unwillingness to keep God's ways and his laws. And they hardened their heart against him, and, and, they, and they were exiled. And then... On the flip side of that coming back, they're still sinning upon return. They haven't, God doesn't look at their condition and say, yeah, 70 years was enough because you've been good now, because you've repented. When they're coming back, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they're full of lists of the sins of the people. And when they come back, they're already doing things they shouldn't do. They're already hardening their heart against God. These are not good people they're not, because they're, they're like us. They're a microcosm of the human experience. Jew and Gentile. We have all hardened ourselves against God. And so the background, think about it that way, is super important. They don't deserve this. If we miss that idea, we miss the theological drama. It's just, at best, then kind of a story about God almost being obligated to do this. But if we, if we really have the background right, if we really have this theological kind of tension and drama, it gets more exciting. There's more of a question mark, actually kind of plastered on it. We say, how? Why? God must be extremely patient to do this, extremely kind. 
the thickest skin of all, like all creatures ever, you could say, uh, in one sense. But he's taking the brunt, he's taking the offense, and he's still speaking kindness uh, uh, into it. So, so what you see then in the first nine verses is the offended party, God, blessing and fighting for the offending party, the people. It's like someone who stole something from someone and that person who was robbed, then going to the thief's yard, painting their garage, to clean the yard, painting their garage, and uh, buying them a week's worth of groceries. You know, having that type of responsive kindness to the offense. Or someone who's the target of a racial slur, being that kind to their maligner. That is what God is like to you and towards me. He has that type of responsive kindness. He is slow to anger, the Bible says, and rich in love. Just that idea alone, God is slow to anger, that should make us just take a deep breath on a regular basis and say, thank God that's the case. If it wasn't, just think about it that way. What if it wasn't? What if God was really fast to get angry with us? You know, like toast. Like we're just done, you know, instantly gone. But God is extremely slow to get angry, and he's quick, though, to show steadfast love to his people. Quick to show love. That's what he's like. And we're seeing a reflection of that here. Uh, the context surrounding their, Israel's return and what he's saying about what he's going to do for these people who are undeserving of, of these types of, of graces, people like us. And that kind of grace has the power to change a person. We'd say this on a human-to-human basis too. Just stick with that illustration. If you were shown that kind of kindness after offending someone or sinning against them, it would move you, right? Or it should. It should move us. It should, it should kind of gently reveal to us our sin, and, but kind of take away shame and guilt as well because it would be clear to us in that moment that the party we offended was not going to punish us or harbor it or show vengeance or prosecute or judge. And so we might say, breathe a sigh of relief and say that, that now our, our relationship is a little bit more reconciled and all of a sudden, but it shows us our sin kind of at the same time gently and, and takes away the guilt and, and softens a person. Grace is supposed to do that. Grace, grace, grace is the power, God's grace towards us in that manner when we, and we'll get to Jesus here in a second, not to wreck the ending, this is all about Jesus, but uh, when we get to him, we'll, we'll see this more, how God's grace in Christ has the power to change a heart more than try harder, more than law, more than make more of an attempt. You know, that, 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 can't, that can never change the heart. That's part of Israel's story, is something had to replace that as mediator. And so when grace does, it, it actually, when we see that my offense to God was responded to graciously and kindly, not with vengeance or kind of reactionary anger, and we really believe that, it has the power to shape a person, you know, actually, actually create humility, actually create gentleness, things that the law and commandments never truly could. Psalm 103.10 uh, says this, it, it, it does, he, God, does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. The gospel is not tit for tat. If it was, again, toast, we're done. It's not tit for tat. You know, it's we bring something to the table and God responds in an unexpected way to it. He responds in a, in a gracious way, in a way that doesn't pay us back for the sins. You know, if it was, if it was based on what we have to offer, what we bring, 
it wouldn't be grace anymore. There's a verse in the early part of Romans 11 where Paul the Apostle, writing to the Roman church, says, if it were on the basis of works, if our salvation were on the basis of works, grace would not be grace. We'd stop talking about it. If it were on the basis of works, grace would not be grace anymore. And so it's the same thing here. If it were based on us and morality, what we bring, based on working our way to God, climbing that ladder, all of a sudden grace would sort of lose its status in the biblical story. We just wouldn't talk about it. Grace wouldn't be grace. Definitionally, it wouldn't be grace. It would be, it'd be works. So remember the prophetic catch here. You know, th- this is all true generally. And, and if you're just reading the Bible for the first time cover to cover and you don't know the end, there would still be some question marks at this point. There, there, were, there was for Israel reading this. There are still question marks as to how exactly God is going to bring this era, this new thing, into the world. Even a psalm like this, when the psalmist wrote this long before Zechariah's ministry, 500 years or so before Zechariah's ministry, uh, there was this, yeah, this is the character of God and we kind of see this in covenant with him now, but also it's not really truly depictive of the covenant that we're in with him based on law. It is tit for tat. You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it was an eye for an eye. You've heard it was tit for tat, but I'm saying to you, it's actually uh, more about this now, turning the cheek. I'm saying to you that I'm embodying a new system, a new way, where God now will actually absorb your sin and, and not treat you based on what you deserve in, in your sin. You know, so even here. And so the, the prophetic catch then is kind of, you know, this is good, but it's not yet great because we haven't name-dropped Jesus. He's what it's all about. You know, from Zechariah's standpoint, all of this is really good, but not yet great. Because the, and, and note the future tense is used here. When Zechariah speaks, when God speaks through Zechariah, he says, I will do this, future tense. Not I have and not I am, present tense or past tense, but I will, future tense. And on that day, so looking ahead. And so the next section then, verses 10 to 14, gives us more information on how exactly God is going to deliver and save in this manner. How the what is truly going to become spiritually true for God's people which is really the driving force in this prophecy. But I think the thing that rightly changes the tone and the direction and the overall expectation of the prophecy so that we might get to Jesus, who is the, the ultimate yes to all of God's promises in the Old Testament, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. So let's read Zechariah 12, 10 to 14. Here's the how. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Raman in the plain of Megiddo. That's referring to uh, the, the death of jo- King Josiah, another one of Judah's kings and the mourning that ensued after his death. Verse 12. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, 
and their wives by themselves. Okay, so here we go. Uh, notice the, the huge shift in emotion here, right off the bat, right? Maybe you saw this when we uh, just started reading even in the first, the first of these uh, verses. God goes from, in the first nine verses, everything's going to be perfect to I'm going to be pierced myself and widespread crying will fill the land. God's going from the first nine verses, I will pour out grace and mercy upon you. Actually, that's verse 10. To I will die. I will pour out grace and mercy upon you to I will be pierced. The word for uh, pierce here is actually used elsewhere in the Bible in the Old Testament to refer to being run through with a spear and killed. It's not a poke, but an impale. So again, the, the utopic vision of verses 1 to 9 has to go through verses 10 to 14. This is the how. And what's especially striking about it is that it's God himself who will be injured. God will be pierced. He says, you will look on, on him upon me um, whom, you have, whom you have pierced. God is more like a king who fights with and for his army on the front lines rather than one who stays home on the couch and watches TV. He's willing to put his life at risk. Or I think take it further, the gospel, we would say, declares to us, my love for you will not circumvent pain. That's what God says to us in these kinds of things. My love for you will not circumvent pain. It's not going to go around it or seek an easier way. There is no other way. My love for you will not circumvent pain. That's how big his love is. And there are whispers of this here in Zechariah 12. See, when God starts talking about his pain, his piercing, and even death, it starts to redefine what our true problem really is. Or maybe clarifyingly, if that's a word, define. The cost, in other words, is directly related to the seriousness of the problem. The cost is directly related to the seriousness of the problem. Not unlike a homeowner pays more for fixing a leaky roof, which we may have to after the storm, uh, fixing a leaky roof, the bigger problem than he or she does for cleaning a carpet stain. The lesser problem. Different costs, right? Based on different degrees of problems to your home. Here's what I mean. God was able to deliver Israel from physical enemies without suffering himself, but he is not able to deliver us from spiritual enemies without his own suffering. God is able time and time again to save Israel physically from a surrounding nation or a threat without suffering himself, but he is not able to save us from spiritual enemies without suffering himself. That's the only way. When Jesus prays in the garden, remember what he prays in Gethsemane? Father, if there's another way, if you could take this cup from me, if there's another way to do it, please do it. What's God's answer? No, obviously, because he doesn't. It's his son. If it's possible, but it was not possible. And so Christ obediently walks that road in love, in an obedience to his Father, Heavenly Father, for, for us. So God's own suffering being the means to the graces of verses 1 to 9 changes our focus from the Babylonians or the Egyptians, traditional enemies of Israel, or even things like headaches, 
to something much more grave, nightmarish, wicked, and spiritual, namely our sin, because the cost goes up. See, the prophets are basically, to kind of go back to that illustration I was listening out before, the prophets are basically saying uh, with their language, God will one day clean your carpets, but it will cost $20,000. That's the tension. So that's what we're seeing here is, is God is, and the question then is, well, how? Like, that doesn't fit. That didn't cost this before. You're talking about God. God's talking about his own piercing. It's different. It changes things. See, so now our focus shifts from what formerly were enemies to what's truly our, what's truly our enemy, which is our sin, which is death, which has always been the problem. Back in Genesis 3, that was always the problem. It was distance from God. It was sin that led to death. It was our propensity to worship ourselves and become like God, listening to that first temptation from Satan himself. And we still do it. But here's where the loose ends of that idea get tied together in the New Testament. So now we'll see how John the Apostle quotes Zechariah in reference to Jesus' death. So we'll see the loose ends kind of get tied together here. John 19, 31 to 37. So picking up where Jesus is on the cross and he just dies, and then then this occurs. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away to basically ensure a quick asphyxiation. 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth. This is John speaking about himself. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, quoting from Exodus. And then here, here's Zechariah. And again, another scripture saying, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So there are two reasons, according to John, why this transpired. There's two things. First, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, referring to Zechariah, but scripture is referential to the Old Testament here. The scripture might be fulfilled. That, that what Zechariah 12 foresaw would come to pass in the death of Jesus Christ. That when it, was, when it spoke about God being pierced there w- and there would be mourning, it was referring to this specific instance. So that all of Zechariah 12 is fulfilled here as well because it's all one prophecy. It's all one oracle. And it's all related to the how behind the what of God going to fight his people's enemies. This is a great thing, too, to remember as you guys read your Bibles uh, now and in the future. If you don't know already, is a lot of times, and Jesus is a great example of this, how a citation of one part of a prophecy uh, kind of comes along with it, the encouragement to read all of it, as though we're all being fulfilled with that citation. So the, the example I'm thinking of is Psalm 22.1. When Jesus hangs on the cross, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One verse quoting Psalm 22.1, a psalm of David. But if you read Psalm 22, there's so much in there about Christ. Almost like he's saying, all of Psalm 22 is, is about me. 
Here's one verse, but go back and read all of it, and it's these clear, direct pointing prophecies about Jesus that he doesn't reference, but clearly do. Same with Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12.10 is this direct, verbatim, explicit pointer to Jesus Christ and explains the circumstances surrounding his kind of post-death hanging on the cross, being pierced. But with that, all of Zechariah 12 is about him as well, so that we can affirm he's the how to the what being applied to our lives. So spiritually speaking, if you look back in verses 1 to 9, spiritually speaking, it's Jesus' piercing that strikes our sin with blindness and panic, not just a bunch of horses. It's Jesus' death that engulfs the devil in flames, not just another nation. It's his death that protects us. It's Jesus' death that actually ends up destroying death because the head of sin is cut off, and sin is what leads to death in the first place. And it's Jesus' death that takes the feeblest of people and makes them children of God again, like David. See, this is about you now. This is about you and me, if you're, if you're a Christian. You're royalty in God's eyes. This is why in the New Testament it says, if you're a child of God, then you're an heir. An heir to the kingdom. And if you're an heir, a co-heir with Christ. You're a co-heir with the Son of God to his kingdom. That's who you are. Because we're children, not employees of God. Not servants of God. He served us. He's transferred us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light. Darkness to light. Satan to God. So we're adopted as children now. And because we're children, the Bible says, therefore, we're heirs to the kingdom. We're royalty. Like David. All of it's about him. And all of it's about the implications for his grace in our life. And so therefore, if that's true, we who share in Christ are also with him, ruling over all enemies. Things that he actually ruled over. Remember, when he came into the world, he did not address physical enemies, at least on a national level. He did not battle Rome. We talk about prophecy being fulfilled. We have to make that shift in in our mind. There's a physical to spiritual progression. Not that the physical is completely left behind always. It's not. But there's a progression. There's something the Babylonians are pointing to here. And the Egyptians earlier in the story. So that now when Jesus says you're a slave to sin when you commit a sin, he's using exile, slavery. This happened when you were back in Egypt language. You were in Babylon language. You were slave to something. But now when you commit a sin, this has always been the case, the true enslaver is doing wrong and worshiping the self. He, he changes the language a bit to show what its proper kind of end game or final goal or finish line his prophecies really were. So when we share in Christ, we are truly ruling with him over those kinds of enemies, over darkness and sin and death. So that in Romans it says, sin will no longer be your master since you are under grace, not law. Sin will no longer be your master since you are under God's grace, not under law anymore. We've transferred kingdoms. And this is who you guys are. And this identity piece is so huge. This is not even the focus of today, so I don't really have time for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is we, we've got we've to go here. As we sin, what, what, what you think about as you're sinning right after sin, just on a regular basis, good and bad days as Christians, feeling distant, feeling close from him days as believers, what's, what do you think about? What's your identity? When you think about God thinking about you, what do you think about? 
Are you a son and a daughter? Are you a co-heir ruling over darkness? Or as it says elsewhere, Satan's under your feet. You're that much over him now. You're crushing his head with your feet as you sit on your throne to Jesus' right side. Or I'm an employee of God. You know, what we think about there says everything about our spirituality and our, and our joys at stake, right? Our ability to, to rule over sin is not, is not doesn't, the power to rule over sin has not come from try harder, but Christ has destroyed your sin. And now he's, he's raised you up over it and he's made you a new creation. You're, you're his son now. You're his daughter. Nothing you can do to sin your way out of that. You know, parents, when, when your kids sin against you and they grieve you, do they lose their status as your child instantly? There's a reason why we're, we're called adopted sons and daughters and not employees you know, they, who get performance reviews twice a year and God says, yeah, pretty good, or eh, not so great. It's not the thing. The status has to do more with being a part of God's family and being, being co-heirs. So the like David phrase there, if you like to write in your Bibles, just circle that one. That, that's huge. You are princes and princesses. You are royalty. You are like David. You already rule over sin and death. And yeah, there's an end cap to that. There's a, a second coming of Jesus where he'll complete that idea and glorify it all the more and we'll experience and feel that in a perfected state. But it's true right now as, as well. The first thing he says here is that the scriptures might be fulfilled, Jesus was pierced. Seeing the connection, all of Zechariah 12 is wrapped up in that, but the idea that Jesus was pierced, you know, so we're not mistaking. And actually, it's important it happens in one sense too, because if it didn't, if Jesus wasn't pierced, we right now would be reading Zechariah 12 saying, well, who's that referring to? Because Jesus wasn't pierced. There'd be more of a question mark kind of stamped across that idea. But it's very important that he was pierced. Very important his legs weren't broken. If you know the Passover lamb idea, I won't go into that, but it's very important that he was this true Passover lamb. And like the Passover lamb's bones were not broken, so was Jesus' on the cross. He was the true thing that deterred God's wrath away from us like the Passover lamb did in the Old Testament. He was a sacrifice for our sins. He was the ultimate way out, way of escape, the ultimate way out of Egypt, our Egypt just being sin. So that's the first thing, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The second thing is these things took place that we might believe at the end of verse 35. So I like this little inclusion that he inserts in verse 35. He's talking about himself, to be clear. He's listing out, he's, he's describing, he's an historian and a theologian here and a preacher and an evangelist. And you see that in, in 35 that he's not just stating facts. He's saying, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. This really happened. So this isn't, you know, just story time at the library, you know, cozying up to John the Apostle saying, here's some principles about what happened. He's saying, no, this, this actually in history, in real time occurred. And it affects your life. It's for you because you're in real time as well. You're real people. This is a real God, a real Savior. This really happened in history. It's not story time. It's, I saw this, guys. If it didn't happen, it's irrelevant. If it's just a story, how does that have claim upon our life? If it really happened, if it's really this real, a real person who really was a son of God, 
who did these things, who really fulfilled the scriptures, who also were real people, for people in history like us means everything. So when John writes this down, he's being a theologian and a preacher. He's trying to call us to response here. He saw these things. He knew, that he knew they really happened. And he knew there's no principle here that would apply without it being tied to history because history and truth go together. But then look what he says. So you may also believe. This is why he connects the dots. This is why he connects Zechariah 12 in, in, in his, his gospel and what Jesus really did, what happened to him on the cross. That you might believe, I might believe, that we might believe that Jesus' death was a special death that saves us from our sins and not just an accident. And that it was by grace we're saved. Because, see, it doesn't say here in John's epistle or his gospel, it doesn't say this happened that you might live a perfectly righteous life just like Jesus's. Nor does it say that you might perfectly emulate this kind of death as though it were just a moral example to follow. Nor does it say that you might be compelled to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. But beautifully and simply, it says that you might believe or trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And so as we ask this question, I'm going to, uh, a few comments on this final question here to uh, kind of wrap up our time in Zechariah 12. The question I want to ask is, what does it mean to be a Christian through the lens of Zechariah 12 and John 19? So this is not a comprehensive answer to that question. You'll pro I'll probably say something here and you'll say, yeah, but what about this? And you're probably right. There's something else to say. But this is through the lens of Zechariah 12 and John 19. What does it mean to be a Christian non-comprehensively but still truly and really on, a, on an everyday basis? What does it mean to be a Christian? The first thing and probably the most important is this. To look on him, him, or on him, yeah, not whim, him, whom we have pierced. To look on Jesus, that, whom we have pierced. So this is saying, uh, I think in a way, that we have all pierced him. So what, what the gospel says is that he took on all of our sinful attempts at overthrowing his rule, all the way to death. Like, like a, again, sacrificial lamb did in the Old Testament. Himself now being the final lamb who truly and finally takes away the, the sin of the world. This is the, the beautiful, almost scandal, and almost incomprehensible grace of the cross, is that as we, were as we were seeking to overthrow God and stage the greatest coup ever towards the greatest king who's ever ruled, God uses that, actually, to save us from that state. It's almost like mind-blowing, but he absorbs it, takes it on, says, I'll actually use that rejection to myself enter into it, and they'll reject me all the way into death so that I will die as a substitute for them, as a human being. I will die for them. And, and then he uses it to kind of end that status or that way, that posture we have towards God of rebellion. He'll soften our hearts again, like we talked about before, that grace will move in us by the Spirit to be changed and to believe. And so second then, going off of that, to see then, as we look on him when we've pierced, to see that his love for us did not circumvent pain. God's love for you and me does not circumvent pain. And note this is all on God. Uh, Zechariah 12 
that the message there, as is, it is for the whole of the Scriptures, Zechariah 12's message is not, here's a picture of the future, now here's what you have to do to get there. Right? Is that stating the obvious? Look at it. Breathe in that idea. Look what's in the white space. Look what's not mentioned. The message of Zechariah 12 is, here's a picture of this utopic future where I will be with you again, destroying all of your enemies, all the things that threatened you being with me again. I will fight them for you. And here's what I will do to bring it into history myself. That's great news in and of itself. But what makes it better is, here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to die and be pierced unto death, impaled myself. I'm going to suffer to allow us to be together again. My love will not circumvent pain and won't go around. But I actually will not just experience pain, I will experience death for, for you. And, and remember that, that, that the cost here, it, it, it affects what, how we view our greatest of problems. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. And I forget which sermon it was, or I point you to it, but it was anywhere between two and six weeks ago, I guess, but something like that. But uh, we talked about how there is problems in our life that are not created equal. Not all of our problems are on the same plane. That's not to minimize smaller problems, and it's not to say that God doesn't care and that we shouldn't pray and shouldn't seek to battle those things, but it's also to say that, biblically speaking, the Bible does not talk, God does not talk about problems on the same level. And we don't think that way either, right, with our daily lives. We might think, well, I've got to mow the lawn, and I also, you know, got diagnosed with a chronic illness. And we might think, well, I'm going to talk to my doctor probably first, and I am worried about going to mow my lawn or whatever. Uh, one's a bigger problem. Or ERs work this way. If you go into an ER and you're bleeding out from an artery and you've got a scrape on your forehead, they're probably not going to flip a coin and say, the doctor's going to flip, okay, which one are we going to handle? They're going to deal with a bigger problem first. Triage care, classic triage care. Our world works this way. God works this way. It's the same with him. The Bible's written this way. There are bigger problems. Headaches are problems that God will heal us from that are on a borrowed time. They will not be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. But they are not as big of a problem as disbelief or as sin or shame or old hard hearts. They're not as big of a problem as that person you know and love is not a Christian yet that you're evangelizing. That, that's, a, that's a bigger thing to pray about and battle and, and seek God's help with. And so we go and orient our lives. And, and when we do, um, we understand the gospel better all along the way. And I mean, Jesus did this too. He, he healed lepers, he cleansed lepers from skin diseases, and he died for our sins on a cross. Not the same thing. The one points to, the former points to the latter, but they're not on equal plane. The latter is what the whole Bible is ultimately driving. All of its wheels are spinning towards that end. When we get there, we see what God was up to all along. So third and here is, and to truly believe in him. Believe means trust, put faith in. And this is not just life eternal. It's, it's too reductionistic and simplistic and overlooking of the present to say that when, when John says this, and actually at the end of his gospel in John 20, he says the same thing. These things I wrote to you, this whole letter, this whole gospel I wrote to you, so that you may believe and by believing, you may have eternal life. And by believing, you may have, just generally speaking, life. You may have life in his name. 
But it's overly reductionistic and simplistic to say that it's just about the future or just about conversion. That, that, that fits really well with 21st century American Christianity, but not with what the Bible says about it. God wants life for you now. And if we, ask, if we believe that, then ask the question, well, how do we get life now? What, what's the Bible say? It's by belief. It's by faith, right? Active trust. Looking at that cross and saying, that's what God thinks of me. That's what he did for me. Twisting that diamond in the light, staring at the glory of God on the cross and saying, that's what he wants me to know about himself. Seeing we bring nothing to the table. And those things are the things that end up giving us life every day. It's not just a a stamp for the future. It's a get out of hell, whatever uh, thing. But uh, it's it's life now. It's new life in his son now. And it happens by by belief. And Romans 15 also says this. It says, this, this is actually, this is a Christian writing this to other Christians a Christian to other Christians. Have that in mind. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What is this saying that, about joy and peace? Where does it come from? It comes from faith, right? It's pretty simple. By believing the gospel, by believing in Jesus every single day of our lives, that's where joy, that's where true, deep-seated peace amidst the chaos of our lives comes from. It's not somewhere else. We don't graduate from the gospel to something else because joy doesn't come from there. We stay seated. We stay grounded in the fact that God loved us to the point of death and back. And that that's how we get in. We stay grounded in his blood grounded in the fact that he drives our sin to madness like the horses in Zechariah 12 and its riders with insane madness and confusion. He's driving death to that end. We believe this. We believe we have new identity as his children. We apply that by faith to the heart. And we receive as a gift the joy and the peace. And as it says here at the end, the hope. And... Um, so I'm going to read this one more time, and, and I want to, because this was written by a Christian to other Christians, I want to read this in the spirit of that as kind of a benediction and a prayer for you guys and for me, for all of us. I'll read this to you. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, uh, the, the kind of the end game here is the same for you. It's, it's by believing that you have eternal life. It's by believing that Jesus loves you. So I invite you to that right now. As, you're, as you sit there and hear the gospel, don't Come to the cross clean. Come messy and, and believe. But to those of you who are saved, uh, receive this and we'll, we'll close in, in prayer. Romans 15, 13. Hiawatha Church, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for the, the gospel of Zechariah 12 today. Uh, thank you for your word that beautifully connects the dots here, makes it clear that uh, Jesus was always in mind, his, not just his uh, sort of character, uh, the man Christ, but also his, uh, his duty, his job, his mission is in focus. Uh, the piercing of Christ is uh, front and center stage. Uh, God, you suffered unto death. You, as a father, you lost your son. Uh, Jesus, as the son, you gave your life. And it was for us that that occurred. 
Your arm was not twisted. Uh, it, was a, it was a willing act and display of, of grace towards sinners. And God, as sinners, uh, may we think about this and, and not kind of, again, reductionistically go back to the way we lived before, which was to be good and then we'll be saved. But rather instead to be filled with the Spirit and to say, by believing we're saved every day, by believing the gospel, clinging to it like it's a life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, not, not a boat on an island around, clinging for dear life, to the fact that God has to save or no good will come of my life. Nothing. No hope. There's no hope without Jesus. And so may we have hope and joy and peace in, the, in, in and through our, our casting ourselves upon the fact that you've loved us unto death and back. Thank you, God, so much. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond with these songs.